Hello and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is episode four, The Fortune of Low-Born Kings. Last week, we had a bunch of really quite intimate stories about the kings of Magadha around the time of Buddha and Mahavira. And in particular, we looked at King Ajatashatru. According to the Jain tales, Ajatashatru was a quite bad egg uh, who became a Jain. But according to the Buddhist tales, Ajatashatru was a very bad egg who became a devout Buddhist. In fact, he's said to have held the, the, the first of the Buddhist councils, not, as I said last week, in a tiny cave by the capital, but more probably in a hall built next to it. Anyway, Ajatashatru outlives Mahavira, and Ajatashatru outlives the Buddha. This week, we go a bit further, and our sources disappear. It's as if, now that Buddha and Mahavira are dead, the followers who, who later looked back and chronicled the history of their masters, withdrew back, back to their own times and stopped paying much attention to political events. And in particular, we don't have the sort of intimate stories that we've had over the last few weeks, which reveal some of the personalities. Instead, we have nothing much more than lists of kings' names. And in fact, even those lists make little sense when you compare them one to another. There, there seem to be some errors in them. And this is a shame because it seems like during this quiet period of history, during this little kind of quiet corner of history, there are some real characters buried. And today we're going to try and best try our best to unearth them. So we're going to look at three lines of kings today. The first is Bimbisara's line, which ends after several generations of allegedly bloody infamy. Next, we're going to look at Shishunaga's line, whose rule ends after three generations because of bloody betrayal. And lastly, we're going to look at the nine Nanda kings, whose rule ends after just two generations because of, well, we'll see. The fate of the descendants of Bimbisara wasn't good. We know about Ajatashatru, we heard about him last week. And uh, remember how he was uh, appointed by his father as viceroy over a province. Uh, when he was viceroy, he was based in one of the six great cities of the ancient Indian world, Champa. And remember how Ajatashatru hadn't been satisfied with this posting, and he'd overthrown his father and perhaps even killed his father to get the throne early. Well, Ajatashatru didn't learn much from this lesson. He had a son called Udayin, and Udayin um, really was the apple of Ajatashatru's eye. Ajatashatru made Udayin viceroy at Champa, just as Ajatashatru himself had been as a youth. And according to Buddhist chronicles, the same thing happened over again. Udayin got impatient, and he killed his father, and he took the throne. Well, we don't know all that much more about Udayin. Um, importantly for our story, he moved the capital to Pataliputra. Pataliputra, remember, is that uh, city that we're going to be following the rulers of. Pataliputra had been built uh, as a huge fort in his father's reign, as, as a staging post to invade the Vrigi, the, the group to the north. But that war is over now. Nevertheless, um, uh, it must have been that, that Pataliputra had grown considerably important in importance because... Um, 
we here we have Udayan moving the capital from Rajagriha uh, to Pataliputra. And Rajagriha, remember, was one of the six great cities of the ancient world itself. So it was a, a large, heavily fortified city with thick stone walls of, of a, a tremendous importance. So Pataliputra really must have grown fast and important very quickly in order to make it worth moving the capital from Rajagriha to Pataliputra. And you can see how that might make sense. You've got a huge fort and a huge number of, of military men around, and a large town is going to grow up to service their needs. Um, and what's more, it's in, a, it's in a good location to control river trade and also trade along the banks of the Ganga. It's also worth having as a fort too, because in, in Udayan's time, the enemies of Magda start to change a little bit. Hitherto, um, we've been stuck in the kind of lower Ganges area, uh, with uh, with enemies like Kasala and the Vridji and Unga, these great Mahajanapadas, these great houses downstream and towards the the, 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 the sea end of the of the Ganga. Um, but now Magda is a big player. It's coming to attention on the whole kind of pan Gangetic um, plain level. And its chief enemy starts to be Avanti. Hitherto, Avanti's just been way too far to the west uh, to really bother Magda or to appear in our story. Actually, Avanti did make an appearance way back in episode uh, one. And there we heard about the king of Avanti, uh, who was a kind of cruel guy, and he wanted to tr uh, entrap the neighbouring king by building a hollow elephant. I remember that, and then... Uh, the king uh, that he, he captured ended up running away with his daughter. Well, that king, the king who, who built the hollow elephant, was called uh, Pragyota. Um, he's been pretty unpopular in the text. He's described as cruel and deceitful, um, so much so that he pushes his daughter away from him. Um, and that's pretty much how all the texts portray him, as the kind of mean kid on the block. Even in Ajatasatra's time... Um, Pradyota or his, or his sons were a threat. And in fact, one of the reasons Ajitashatru built Pataliputra was to protect from uh, Pradyota. Well, Odean's not going to deal with Avanti and not going to deal with Pradyota or his descendants. But nevertheless, Udayan seems to have done a reasonable job of keeping hold of the territory in Magda and stopping it from being invaded and taken over. Well, from there, the dynasty of Bimisara not so much goes downhill as kind of keeps going on at the same rock bottom level. Udayan is killed by his son, who takes control. And the new king is in turn killed by his son, who takes control. And that king is in turn killed by his son, who in turn takes control. Who is in turn killed by his son, who in turn takes control. And pretty soon, the people of Magda are so fed up with all of this instability that they decide to kick the whole royal family out of the country. So the last of the line of Bimbisara have been thrown out in a popular revolt. And the people are looking around for someone to replace them. And they settled on a man named Shishunaga. Shishunaga was viceroy at Benares, which is modern-day Varanasi. You might well have seen pictures of Varanasi 
Um, you have these pictures of people's funeral pyres burning by the river. Anyway, Shishunaga was viceroy there, and maybe the people thought, hey, in the past, kings have always started out as viceroys, um, and why not have that happen again? Why not elect a viceroy or, or put a viceroy to be, to be king of the kingdom? The only difference this time is that he's not the son of the king. Shishunaga was instead the son of a Lachavi Raja. That doesn't exactly make him royalty. The Lachavis, remember, were that republic with uh, 7,707 Rajas. So being the son of one of the 7,707 Rajas just means he was from a fairly posh family uh, in the Lachavi clan. And of course, the Lachavis are now part of Magadha. So it makes good sense. Shishunaga took control of Magda. And actually, pretty soon, he took control of Magda's great enemy, Avanti too. Avanti, that powerful state to the east that had been ruled by Pratyot, who is now ruled by his descendants. Unfortunately, we, all, we know almost nothing at all about the war, only that Shishunaga won. In this new, enlarged Magdan kingdom, Shishunaga carried on the delegating. He made his own son viceroy at Benares, just as previous kings had made their sons viceroy from where, at where they were from. And he moved the, the capital city too, away from Pataliputra, and back to the old capital, Rajagriha. It's not really clear why. Maybe he just liked to move around a bit. In fact, he, he moves it again later on in his reign to Vaishali, the land of his parents. And the capital is pretty fluid during his reign. It only settles down in the reign of his son. Shishunaga was placed by his son around the turn of the century. Um, and for once, we have no reports of his son killing him. And that makes him a very good son by the standards of the age. The son's name was Kala Shokya, sorry, Kala Shoka, the black Ashoka, uh, or possibly Kakavana, meaning crow-coloured. It's probably worth taking a step back at this point and having a quick word about the names of kings. Virtually all kings we're talking about have multiple names and different sources will give different names. So the Buddhist texts will give one name, the Puranas will give another and the Jain texts yet another. Sometimes the names a single king is given are pretty similar to one another. They're just variations on the same word. So. For example, you might have noticed in the last episode we were talking about Ajatashatru, and that's the name of the king as it's given in the Puranas. But when it comes to quoting the Buddha source at the end of the episode, I talk about Ajatasattu, and that of course is the same king, uh, it's just variations on the same name. Other times, a king's names can sound very different. And this is especially common because most of the names of kings seem not to be given names, but epithets describing who they are. So Ajatashatru and Ajatashatu both mean without enemies. And that seems to refer to those stories um, where Ajatashatru's father isn't his enemy, uh, despite Ajatashatru's aggression towards him. But the Jain texts have a different story about Ajatashatru's childhood, and they call him Kunika which means animal horn, horny, something like that. Um, not really clear to me why he's called that. But the point is that we, since we're calling the kings by, by epithets, if different sources have different ideas about what the king's like, they may well use different epithets for the same name. It's a bit like uh, someone calling um, 
you know, the, the king we call Richard the Lionheart. It's a bit as if, if, you know, one of the sources called him Lionheart and another source who disapproved of him more powerfully called him Cowardly or something like that. And it's pretty much the same, not just for Agita Chartreux, but for every king and many more of the characters we're discussing besides that. With all this, it's really quite hard to work out who is supposed to be who, particularly when you uh, combine this with the fact that the different sources have different lists of kings which don't always match up in any, any obvious way. I'm going to just choose the name that I read in most of the secondary literature, most of the Indian uh, historians. Um, as a tiebreaker, I, I'll choose the name that I like to say more. Okay, so that's a... Uh, a uh, little skit on names. Anyway, where were we? Oh yes, uh, Shishunaga was replaced by his son, and this is around 400 BC. And for once, his son hadn't murdered him. And his son's name was Kala Shoka. Kala Shoka we know a little bit about. He held the second Buddhist council at Vishali. Unlike the first council, which was supposed to be held by Ajita Shatru, the second council almost certainly happened. This is a historical event. And there are a bunch of different stories about it. One story uh, goes like this. The monks of Rigi uh, wanted to relax the rules on monks in ten different ways. They wanted to do things like uh, be able to store salt in an animal horn. Even though it was an animal product, it's a really efficient way to store salt. They wanted to be allowed to eat in the afternoon. They wanted to be allowed to have buttermilk for dessert. So once again, we've got the republics, the Vrigi, uh, being a source of more liberal, unorthodox thinking. So these groups of monks in Vrigi who are wanting to relax the rules, and a council of monks, maybe as many as 10,000, uh, gather from all across uh, the, the the, the area, and meet in the great city of Vishali. And they decide to condemn this as a heresy um, and attack, or, or rather throw out the Vrigian ideas. Um, and they also did some other stuff too, like they threw out some, some bogus texts that people were claiming were part of the canon and said, no, 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 that, that's not part of uh, what the Buddha said. You can, you can see this as the people in the Sangha, in the Buddhist Sangha, trying to pull together um, the different parts into a more cohesive, coherent body. If that was what they were trying to do, it's somewhat of a failure, because after the Second Buddhist Council, the community di divides into two. The more conservative elders, who want the, to keep the rules very strict, uh, and the more liberal Great Assembly. Um, actually, though, some historians argue that that's not really what happened in the council at all, uh, and the council uh, broke up very amicably, uh, and people are just reading later schisms back into the earlier history. We don't know much more than that about Kala Shoka, uh, except that he moves the capital back to Pataliputra, uh, which must have grown even more important because the capital is going to stay there for the rest of the scenes of podcasts at least, and it's going to keep on growing in importance and size. Kala Shoka meets a grisly end. No, he wasn't killed by his children. Rather, he gets a dagger in his throat on the outskirts of his city. But to tell that story... We need to start with the story of the next dynasty. This is the story of the nine Nanda kings. But it starts with the Greek historian Curtius, who wrote a history of Alexander the Great. 
and it's a several books long. And by book nine, Alexander has invaded the Indus Valley in the extreme west of India. And Alexander is wondering to himself whether he should go any further, whether he should take his, his force of uh, Macedonian Greek soldiers further out into the desert and into the Gangetic Plain beyond. So he asks a local Indian king he has conquered, what's out there? What's past the river? What's out past that desert? And the Indian king replies that the whole land is ruled by a man who had come to power in an unusual way. This is the story that the king tells Alexander. There was once a barber. He wasn't really a very good barber. Um, at the very least, you know, he had to struggle to get by, had to struggle to find enough money to eat. But he was a very good-looking fellow, and he caught the eye of the queen, who rather kind of took a fancy to him, enjoyed his company, enjoyed being around, around someone who's so beautiful in his face. And the queen, sooner or later, introduced him to the king, who also rather liked his company and hang around him a lot. So this, this barber, this low-born barber, soon becomes firm friends with the king, the barber keeps a sort of venom inside him. He's not being duped by all this high society stuff. As soon as he's got the king's confidence, he finds an opportunity and puts a knife in him. And the king dies. And the barber, by some cunning manipulation, managed to assume power as regent for the king's sons. He promises to take care of the sons and to take care of the kingdom for them. But he doesn't take very good care because pretty soon the barber has pushed aside the sons and put his own son on the, th on the throne, not just as regent, but actually as king. And this new king is called Mahapadma Nanda. And he is going to found our third dynasty, the Nine Nandas. Well, it's not quite clear if the story uh, that the Indian king told to Alexander was really quite right. But if the Greek story is right, then King Mahapadmananda's uh, father was a Shudra. That's the lowest of the Varnas. Uh, Varnas is something like major caste. We're going to have a separate podcast, actually, just talking about caste. Um, but for now, we're going to translate it slightly incorrectly as caste. So um, this new king, Mahapadmananda, he is born from a low-caste family, a low-class family at the very least. And that story, that Greek story, tallies well with what we know from Indian sources uh, about the end of Shishunaga's dynasty. Because Shishunaga's son, Kalashoka, is said to have had ten sons who ruled simultaneously. And these, you could, these could easily be uh, the sons that uh, Mahapadma's barber father was regent for. And Kalashoka is said, um, just as we've just we said, uh, to, be, to have been stabbed to death in the vicinity of the city. And it's quite tempting to suppose that this is the barber uh, taking uh, the king out in his confidence and stabbing him to death in a quiet place. Loads of other Indian sources also mention um, uh, uh, Mahapadma Nanda's father as being uh, a barber. The Puranas give a slightly different story. They say he was the child of Kalashoka and a Shudra woman, so it's the old king kind of... Um, getting in bed with someone he probably shouldn't have been. But pretty much everyone agrees that the new king, Mahapadma, is low-born. Speaking of names, Mahapadma's got a, a bunch of names, and they're quite revealing. Some of these names allude to his riches and his power. 
So uh, Mahapadma literally means great lotus, and it indicates his great wealth. Elsewhere, he's called Mahapadma Pati, which means lord of a great lotus, or something like that, and indicates that he ruled over many people. Uh, by the way, I'm trusting to my own Sanskrit translations. Um, they're probably wrong. So take that bit with a pinch of salt. Mahapadma also uh, aspires to the title Ekarat, uh, which means one king, uh, and is the name you give for someone who rules over uh, all of the earth, or at least, you know, all of the known parts of the earth. So some of his names allude to his riches and power. And these names were really quite appropriate because Mahapadmananda had a huge army. The Greek sources say he had 20,000 cavalry, 200,000 infantry, 2,000 four-horse chariots, and 3,000 war elephants, maybe 4,000, maybe 6,000. This is actually the, the first reference to uh, such a significant, significant number of elephants being used in war. And this would have been a really formidable fighting force. Each would have had uh, archers on their backs, and they must have been completely, utterly unstoppable and terrifying. I mean, imagine uh, you're an archer or a spearman. How would you go about trying to take down an elephant? You'd just run. So with this huge army, Mahapama goes on a, on a massive conquering spree. He conquers Kalinga, which is a state on the east coast, south of the mouth of the Ganga. Um, he, he, he conquers Kalinga and he carries the treasures of the Kalinga kings uh, back up to Magda. This isn't just a raid, though. He's not just getting money. He actually takes full control of this new state and starts building up the infrastructure. So according to one inscription that we have, he built an aqueduct there. So he's clearly managing the land and trying to uh, make it a, a wealthy place so he can tax it and get lots out of it. And presumably he, he's building roads um, and, and really getting a lot from Kalinga. And it's not just Kalinga. He, he, he conquers much more besides. Of the 16 great houses, most are part of Mugza by the end of his reign. Shurasena, Panchala, Kashi, Kalinga, Kuru, and that old enemy that we've heard quite a lot about, Kastala. So he's ruling now over most of northern India, and perhaps a little bit of the Deccan Plateau too. He is indeed, as his name says, sovereign, lord of infinite hosts, uh, and the plunder and the taxes must have made him an, a fabulously rich man. Mahapadma has other names too. Um, names that allude not to his riches and power so much as to his low-born origin. So the Puranas call him destroyer of all Kshatriyas. Um, and this is important. Um, I'll explain what a Kshatriya is just now. Um, it's important because a huge part of Mahapadma's story is about his Varna, his caste. The Varna system... Um, which I've been calling caste, but I'm going to stop now, is, uh, is a system uh, which was prevalent in, in much of ancient India. Um, you divide people up into four varnas, and the varna is supposed to determine your role in life. So we have the Brahmins, and they're the priests. And you have the Kshatriyas, and they're the warriors and the kings. And then you have the Vashyas, they're the traders and the, the farmers. And then you have the Shudra, and they do the donkey work 
for the other varnas. So we have four varnas, and they come in at a very distinctive hierarchy. According to the Brahminical tradition, Brahmins are at the top, the priests are at the top, the Kshatriyas are next, then the Vashya, and then the Shudra. According to Buddhist traditions, and this surprised me a bit, actually that's not the way it is. Uh, Kshatriyas are at the top, and then it's the Brahmins, um, and the rest is as we think it is. But pretty much everyone agrees that the Shudra at the bot- are at the bottom. Uh, by the way, outsiders are aware of this system too. The Greek ambassadors and the Greek visitors to the Indian lands also uh, make a note of a system much like the Varna system. So this is pervasive in society. This isn't just something you're going to find in textbooks. It's going to be affecting everyone's life day to day. So Shudra at the bottom of the Varna system and Mahapadma's father is a, is a barber. And that's a Shudra profession. So Mahapadma is also a Shudra. And he's there at the bottom of the Varna system. Yet here he is killing all those Kshatriya kings around him and taking over their lands. And so many uh, sources uh, see the rule of Mahapadmananda and his descendants as an aberration. Like he's an usurper, right? He's out, he, he's, he's, he's out of his place. He's, he's stepping out of the place where he's supposed to be. Things are not as they should be in the world when a Shudra is king. That's the idea. Actually, not, not all of our ancient sources are hostile to Mahapadma. Jain sources uh, are, are kinder to, to him and to the other Nanda kings, um, just as they were kinder to Ajatashatru. And perhaps for the same reason, because the Nanda appear to have been Jain, uh, or at least they, they allowed Jainism to prosper in their kingdom. In particular, Mahapadma is said to have had a, a Jain chief minister, a Jain chief, chief advisor called Kalpaka. And the stories go that Kalpaka really, really didn't want to be chief minister, but he was kind of his arm was twisted uh, and he was forced to be chief minister. And once he became uh, a powerful, once he became chief minister, he helped Mahapadma conquer northern India and conquer all those Kshatriya guys. And when Mahapadma died uh, and handed his throne to his son, in, in the same way, Kalpaka, when he died, uh, he handed the office of chief minister to his own son. And it became a hereditary thing. Thus, we had a, a whole series of Jain ministers. Mahapadma had a series of descendants, they're probably sons, who ruled after him. Uh, and there are eight of them, uh, and that's why we talk about the nine Nandas. There are nine Nandas in total. We don't know much more than their names, and we're not even really sure of that. We do know, however, a little about the last of the Nanda kings. He seems to have been, at least by some accounts, a greedy little man. In fact, he was nicknamed Dhananda, meaning money Nanda, in honour of his penny-pinching ways. And it's said that he taxed everything. Even the stones that you own could be taxed. Even the skins that you wore. Although actually, of course... You know, we nowadays tax stones and skin. Uh, you can buy stones on websites. Really weird. Anyway, so uh, Nanda, uh, Dana Nanda, the last of the Nanda kings, may even have invented a, a standardised measure um, for, for weighing and, and for trading. And that's hinted at by Panini, that grammarian that we heard, heard from um, way back in episode one. 
So read your, your grammar books for clues about day-to-day life. There's a lot in there. Anyway, according to folklore, Dana Nanda uh, amassed a, a humongous amount of wealth. His wealth is legendary. Centuries later, pilgrims from China tell tales of the, of, of the, the treasures of the Nanda. Right? So it's famous across a huge area. It said that he had 990 million gold pieces. And it said that he went to the Ganga and he excavated a pit in the Ganga and hid a huge amount of gold there where it still lies today. You can go and look for the gold of the Nandas if you want to. So this was the world that Alexander the Great came right up to the border of. And he looks over and he sees what's there. And to be honest, it probably scares him a little. Greek tales tell of an ambitious young man who came to meet Alexander as he was in India. And this this ambitious young Indian man tries to persuade Alexander to invade, to cross the river and invade the the Nanda. And uh, this, this visitor says, look, the king of the Nanda, the king of the Magda, is low caste. Everybody hates him. The kingdom of Magda is ripe for the plucking, Alexander. If only you'll cross the river and take it. But Alexander, uh, whether because he's scared or because he's come too far or because his army's pulling him back, refuses. And the ambitious young man goes off and he forms his own plan. More of him later. In the next podcast, we're going to be looking at uh, the Persians and Alexander, the foreign invasions into India to set the stage for the first of the great empires of ancient India, the Mauryas. Every week, we read out a bit of the ancient texts themselves to get a bit of a flavour of how people talk and how people think. And also, so that you don't have just me talking to you all of the time. This week is a passage from the Puranas, and it's a passage talking about Mahapadma and his low-born origin. Here's how it goes. As son of the last Shishunaga ruler by a Shudra woman, will be born a king, Mahapadma, who will terminate all of the Kshatriyas. Thereafter, kings will be of Shudra origin, Mahapadma will be soul monarch, bringing all under his soul sway. He will be 88 years on this earth. He will uproot all Kshatriyas, being urged on by prospective fortune. He will have eight sons, of whom Sukalpa will be the first, and they will be kings in succession to Mahapadma for 12 years. A Brahmin, Kautilya, will uproot them all, and after they have enjoyed the earth for 100 years, the earth will pass to the Mauryas. Well, that was a pretty short episode, and for good reason. Number one, we haven't got uh, many sources, but actually these three dynasties we've talked about pass pretty quickly. In fact, the reading that we've just had from the Puranas might have overestimated it slightly. A lot of historians think that the Buddhist chronicles are right when they say that the entire Nanda dynasty lasted just a total of 22 years. So don't feel like we've gone quickly through a large period of time. We've gone quickly 
through a pretty small period of time. Anyway, thanks for listening. Um, and if you're enjoying the podcasts, please do consider uh, uh, giving to my wife's charity. That's the Snehal Situ Memorial Fund. Details are on the website. Thanks. Take care.